يا رب يا صلاح محمد صلاح محمد صلاح وابا الله 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 يا بلاد الله الله يا بلاد الله الله يا بلاد The global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. If we're talking about the world of Middle East soccer, there's probably one name that comes to mind. That's right, Mohamed Salah, the young Egyptian and Liverpool centre forward with apparently magical feet. He's already helped his home country qualify for the next World Cup become the English Premier League's PFA Player of the Year and scored 31 goals in this past season. But as many fans will already know, the background to Salah's career, or at least his breakthrough into the European football leagues, came as an indirect result of the Port Said Stadium disaster in which riots broke out killing 74 people. This was, of course, in February 2012 and was wrapped up in the fog of the Egyptian revolution. In the aftermath of the riots, the Egyptian authorities suspended the football league for two years. Yet the sport has always been extremely political. In this episode, I talked to James M. Dorsey, a multiple award-winning journalist who writes an absolutely fantastic blog called The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer. We explore the relationship between the beautiful game and the dirty world of politics in a bit more depth and go on to talk about more general but hopefully at least as interesting broader political developments in the Middle East and beyond. Hi James, great to talk to you. How how are you? I'm good thanks, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Great. Well, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to talk to me. I'm really excited, actually, about about talking to you. I've, I've been a fan of your blog for quite a while. Well, that's great. I'm glad you enjoy it. Yeah. I, I actually, um, I recommend it. I used to teach at the University of Liverpool in the UK. Right. And I, I had a, a bunch of uh, sort of lads who were in my, in my class, and I told them about this, and they absolutely... They latched onto it like I've never seen anything before in, wow. in teaching. Because <laughs> they, they then did their presentation on uh, soccer in the Middle East. Right. Uh, and, then, and, uh, and then one of them did an essay on it. And oh, he was really oh, enthused about it. I'm glad it was useful. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay well, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about uh, your background in journalism and, and why, you know, why this um, medium is uh, why, why soccer is a good way to talk about uh, politics and international relations in the Middle East. Well, I was a foreign correspondent for, I guess, about 40 years, a little bit more maybe, uh, for publications like the Financial Times, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, was a two-time Pulitzer candidate, uh, won other prizes. Uh, basically, my career really was ethnic uh, and religious conflict across the globe 
I've worked in Asia, I've worked in the Middle East. I've, well, I've worked in Asia, I've worked in uh, Latin America, in Africa, in Europe, in North America. But a heavy emphasis was on the Middle East and the uh, Muslim world. Um, got invited to join a university in Singapore seven years ago. And lo and behold, I'm still here. And they still tolerate me. Um, uh, about just before I got invited to Singapore, um, I had left the Wall Street Journal. Um, actually, after my last one, one, be, one before last libel case, which I had won in the uh, uh, <clears throat> House of Lords in Britain, which was at the time the Supreme Court, and that was the basis on which libel law was changed in Britain. Um, and I was looking for a way of uh, looking at the Middle East and, and the broader Islamic world um, that would be different from what most people did, simply because uh, there are a lot of people who do the Middle East, and whenever the Middle East is in crisis, even more people come out of the woodwork, and you sort of got to try and distinguish between you know between nuances in what they write to see the differences, and I wanted to do something that was markedly different. And I'd written a piece uh, as a fluke in uh, the summer of 2010 on the world on the eve of the World Cup in South Africa uh, <clears throat> about the politics of why Middle Eastern nations were not that strongly represented in World Cups. And a close friend of mine who's a, uh, a very established writer but also a soccer fan phoned me and said, you've got a book. Uh, and it's sort of like when somebody says something to you and the penny drops, it was already there, but you needed that one statement to recognize. And that's what I did. And so I started the blog, um, not really knowing what I was getting into in a sense. And my other motive was that I wanted to, uh, see if I could in part attract a readership that were not the usual suspects that read this kind of stuff. And as I dug deeper into it and the blog became more popular, I actually realized that the Middle East and North Africa were different in one sense, and that is football is by definition pol political. However, in most parts of the world, it plays a, uh, its political role comes and goes. With other words, it plays a role uh, for a specific period of time in a specific circumstance because it uh, serves a specific purpose. In the Middle East, the role of football, less so now, today, but up until, I would argue, certainly up until five years ago, and Still, in many ways, uh, football was crucial to every development in the region for the last century, basically since it was introduced by either the British or the French uh, in, the, in the colonial period. So if you're talking about nation building, nation formation, state formation, uh, regime uh, survival, um, political battles for whatever rights, labor, gender, 
human rights, political rights. Soccer was a, a major player in all of that in the Middle East. Okay, so so give us some examples then. Uh, that's a, uh, the, of how uh, football played this this role in in the major developments. Well, you can work backwards. Look at the um, 2011 popular Arab revolts. There are people who would argue that without the militant soccer fans in Egypt, uh, Hosni Mubarak would not have been overthrown. I'm not sure that I would go that far, but I certainly wouldn't deny that. The, the soccer fans were key to the protests. They were key to the protests to overthrow Mubarak, and they were key to the anti-government protests uh, that uh, followed in the years, first against the military government, then against the government of uh, uh, Mohamed Morsi, the elected president, and against the, um, the government of the current uh, general-turned-president, uh, Abdul Fattah al-Sisi, uh, even though that has become far more difficult just because of the degree of repression that, that you see in, um, uh, in Egypt today. Uh, the same is true for, you know, revolts or protests that took place in that same period in Yemen, sorry, in uh, Libya, uh, Tunisia and Libya, protests in Morocco and Algeria. You go further back, uh, you know, go back to a century. Um, football was very important and sports was very important in uh the the attempt in the late Ottoman Empire to uh, create a more more modern more Western uh, state and um, to prepare youth in uh, you know in a pre stage for def for being able to defend the country the same was true in Iran under the Shah a century you know almost ninety years ago. Uh, you go to the 1920s, Algeria, the re resistance against French uh, 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 colonial uh, rule was in the football clubs. The same, same in Mor uh, Morocco. Um, you go to the 1919 revolution in Egypt that led, paved the way for independence in 1922. It was all plotted and planned on a football uh, uh, in a football club that was established by people who were anti-colonial, anti-monarchial, uh, and, 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 and were looking to, to change the regime. Um, you know, look at Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, you know, the, the rivalry between Beitar Jerusalem, which is the most anti-Arab uh, club in Israel, it's notorious, even though they're trying to change that, and Bnei um, Zachnin, uh, which is the only Palestinian club to ever, ever have won the uh, Israeli Cup. You know, so you can go through any number of examples. Okay, well, 
I, I, I was just um, I read your your latest column uh, in 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 the blog and uh, in which you talk about how there are conflicts uh, across all of Asia. Basically, you talk about uh, uh, Kurdish areas of Syria. You talk about China. Um, you talk about the the Rohingya uh, and Pakistan and and a whole range. And you you make the point that well, I'll just quote you because I think it's it's a very it's a very straightforward, to-the-point statement, I think is actually quite revealing. You say, stripped of the bare essence, these conflicts and tensions have one thing in common, a quest for either cultural, ethnic, national or political rights, or a combination of those that governments not only refuse or recognise, but are willing to suppress with brutal force. Um, I'm just thinking about what you've just said about the role that uh, football has played in, in, in change. Is it is it that... Is it the reason why? Is the reason why football fans of football uh, 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 football fans can be agents of change in this? Is it because they're a they're a, a means to coalesce these ideas about cultural, ethnic, and national identity or, or roots? That they're, they're a sort of a, a logos for those to coalesce around, so that so that they they, they can take on. It's an it's an organisation through which people can can resist this kind of suppression. Is that is that why why you think it's um, a, a sort of a, a change agent or or at least a, a yeah? Well, let me let me before before I answer the question, let me say something more general, which I think is important. You will hear from a lot of people, uh, both uh, sports executives. So FIFA, you know, the world governing soccer body, uh, or the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, and you'll hear that also the same thing from all kinds of activists, that football can build bridges, that football can, uh, uh, can, can contribute to peace. And I think that that's hogwash. <laughs> Uh, the reason I say that <laughs> is, is this. The assumption in that statement is that football can be a driver. Yeah. And it cannot be a driver. If you have an environment in which feuding parties want to uh, build bridges, then yes, football can contribute to that. But football can be as divisive. Now, just to give you a very simple example, there's a famous story, which is a true story, of how in December 2014, at, during, the, during World War I, the Brits and the Germans declared a ceasefire so that they could play a game of football. And yes, they, they, they had a ceasefire, they played their game of football, and a day later they went back to killing each other and by the end of the war, four years later, millions were dead. So, you know, football didn't change very much. It gave people a breather for a moment. The reason why uh, football fans, militant football fans, um, and we're really talking about militant football fans, um, is uh, play often a political role is several fold. First of all, there are not that many sports. I don't know much about baseball or 
of football, but it may apply there too. But there are not very many sports where the attachment to the team is almost tribal. It's part of your identity. So you may support Ralph Nada in tennis, but you don't, he's not your identity. FC Liverpool or whatever it is, is part of your identity. And that's a very strong bond. Um, on top of that, soccer or football is, is an aggressive sport. It's about conquering the other half of the field. And it's, uh, it, you know, it, it brings fans together, it, it, you know, and numbers count. Uh, and, and there's enormous tension and, 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 and there's power in being an organized uh, group with that kind of motivation and force. One of the, the reason I talk about militant soccer fans is that you're really, the most organized of football fans are often groups that identify themselves as ultras. And ultras are, are a form of football fandom that came out of, certainly out of Italy in the 50s, 60s, 50s primarily, to some degree out of Argentina. And these are, are, are people who are by definition political, even if they do not define themselves as political and will deny it. So they have a, a power analysis of the game in which they, officials are basically uh, pawns of a regime or of an administration. Players are mercenaries because they'll play for whoever pays them best. And the only true supporters of the club are the fans. Um, so it's a very, and if you're coming back to the Middle East, if you're operating in a authoritarian or dictatorial regime that does not allow for any independent, uncontrolled public space, the fact that the fans defining themselves as the only uh, true supporters of the club and therefore staking a claim to ownership of the stadium uh, is a direct challenge to the regime. Now, also, authoritarian dictatorial regimes uh, don't uh, don't like independently organized groups. So these fans get confronted. And as a result, you, result, you have confrontations between law enforcement and the fans. And these fans have become fearless. They don't care. And they'll fight. So there, you know, so you get a, you get a, an, an, an ideology that is anti-authoritarian, basically uh, adheres to the principle of ACAP, all cops are pigs. And 
also has then an empathy with others who are being suppressed. And in you know, in case the case of Egypt, the fans, many of these fans, not all of them, but many of these fans lived in popular neighborhoods that were run by basically corrupt police officers. So the problems that they were encountering as football fans in the stadium with the authorities, they were encountering at home on, you know, on their, on their home street. Uh, which really meant that, um, that, you know, if and when the opportunity arises, they be, they, you know, as it did in 2011, they become a force in the anti-government protests. And in many ways, a very important force because they're battle-hardened, they're fearless, they're organized. They've done this before. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, I, I certainly recognize what you're talking about, it being an alternative sort of no for identity. There was when I was a, a kid, I was never that into football. I mean, it didn't really excite me as, as, as much as it did for some kids. But I was very sure that Stoke City, I don't know if you've even heard of them, but they were my team. And the the alternative, Port Vale was definitely the the the, uh, the enemy. I mean, again, it, it's tribal also in the sense. I don't. It may not have been in your family, but in many families, you know, uh, the um, the fandom for a specific team is handed down from father to son or daughter. So it's very tribal. Uh, you know, the other thing is, if you look at the Washington Post today. They have a piece uh, which is trying to explain the violence after the Super Bowl in Philadelphia. And uh, I think it's a sociologist whose name I now don't recollect, but who said in the piece, you know, this is this is about, you know, the attachment to the team is about the about the human desire to want to belong to something. And even if you are, even if, you know, if, if you leave a somewhat isolated or lonely life or whatever, this is, becomes your family. You know, so the emotions and the ties that go with this are run very deep. Yeah, and, and, uh, and beyond any immediate explanation as well, really. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, that, l let me ask you... Um, uh, about the you know the more sort of the regional politics side of this, and if we start at the top, so the World Cup is going to be in Qatar in 2022. Um, it, as you mentioned, usually this is considered a, a venue, an opportunity for international cooperation and 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 uh, bridge building, but quite the opposite is is actually been happening uh, between Qatar and its closest neighbours. Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE in particular, who who is uh, who have blockaded uh, Qatar. And if, if the listeners don't know, Qatar is a, very, a sort of a very small country, a little thumb that sticks out of the side of, side of Saudi Arabia. Incredibly wealthy, uh, but has uh, um, uh, taken an alternative political path recently. But it, this this blockade is uh, is affected even the World Cup planning. And so on. Can you give us a bit of background? What on earth is going on here? It's extraordinary events. Well, let me let me divide it into two parts. One is the World Cup itself. Um, 
you know, and there's been controversy about the Qatar World Cup ever since it was awarded to Qatar in December 2010. The controversy centered on two things. One, the labor regime that uh, is, was in place in Qatar, that is in place in all of the Gulf states, frankly, uh, and that is abusive without question. It uh, puts an employee, or premier, and even more so a worker, at the uh, mercy of the employer. And living conditions are bad, working conditions are not always great, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, was the integrity of the bid. So whether or not Qatar had bought the World Cup. Uh, I think one thing to keep in mind here is that most mega sporting events, World Cups, Olympic Games, by and large leave two legacies, debt and white elephants. Very few leave a legacy of any kind of social, economic, let alone political change. Fact of the matter is that even we're now, what, uh, four years before the Qatar World Cup, it's already produced social and economic change in Qatar and political change to some degree. And Qatar, let's, you know, make no bones about it, Qatar is an autocratic state. But uh, in the Gulf, if you are a critic, you're in prison if you're a national. If you are a foreign critic, you certainly don't get into the country. And in some cases, you don't even get onto the flight to get to the airport that would turn you around. Qatar engages with its critics. So uh, it engages with Amnesty International, which is barred anywhere else, Human Rights Watch the International Trade Union of Confederation, uh, the International Confederation of Trade Unions. Um, and there has been less change than activists, human rights activists, trade union activists would want, but nonetheless, even acknowledged by them, serious change in the, in the, in the labor regime. So, with other words, you already have a legacy of change in Qatar, even before the event takes place. The integrity of the bid, I have, you know, I'm Johnny come lately to the conclusion, but I have no doubt that Qatar bought the World Cup. I would still argue in favor of holding the World Cup in Qatar for the very simple reason one, Qatar had tough luck. <clears throat> it was in the hot seat when all of these corruption scandals broke. But World Cups are bought, you know, that's traditionally. And not only by autocratic countries, but also by democratic countries. Look at everything around the 2006 World Cup in Germany. So the question really here is, you know, what is this about? Is this about penalizing someone or one country 
and setting an example, endangering change that already has taken place, and aggravating a much broader political situation that has nothing to do with football, or is it about structural change uh, in international sports governance to ensure that the, you know that this is that this no longer is the standard practice? Now, the World Cup is not at the core of the conflict in the Gulf, but it's become a player in the conflict in the Gulf. And the conflict in the Gulf, you know, you have uh, an alliance that's led by, uh, essentially led by the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and a bunch of beggars who are financially dependent on them. Although to be fair to the Egyptians, they've taken a little bit more of an independent stand. Who last June declared a diplomatic and economic boycott of Qatar that was designed to force Qatar to basically subject itself uh, and its policies to those of the Emirates and the Saudis. And the Qataris have refused that. And it's not the first time that the Saudis and the UAE have tried this and failed. Um, and you essentially have a stalemate. Uh, the Saudis and the UAE and their allies have failed to garner international support for their boycott. Um, you look at U.S. policy, and yes, there were initially some tweets from Trump that seemed supportive of the Saudis, and Trump was in in uh, May of last year in a much touted visit to Saudi Arabia, and the boycott took place shortly after that. But if you look at the re at the record of eight months of U.S. policy, it's been much more favorable to Qatar on the dispute than it has been to uh, Qatar's detractors. Um, and this is about basically, you know, two leaders who want to shape the region in their mold and, you know, don't shy away from anything in doing so, whether that's the war in Yemen, whether it's um, an attempt to force the hand of the Lebanese prime minister, uh, whether it's on the issue of Jerusalem. I mean, you can go down a whole list of, of, of issues uh, that have played in, sorry, in the news over the last um, eight, eight months or so. Um, but that's what it's about. And, and, and now you've got a stalemate. And, the, you know, the choices really, the realistic choices are this becomes the new normal or you or the parties are prepared to find some face saving way out of this that won't change things won't solve things but it will uh, allow them a way out of what basically is a cool de sac the galleries are willing to do that there's no indication that either the uae or the saudis were willing to do that now the interesting thing coming back to football is that, you know, the boycott has been absolute. So, with other words, all land, sea, air links have been cut off. Nationals of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, are not only not allowed to travel to Qatar, 
if they even hint at criticism of the boycott, they end up behind bars. The one thing that has breached that is football. So uh, the Saudis and the UAE tried very hard to get the Asian Football Confederation to uh, have Asian Cup qualifying matches played in a neutral venue rather than if their clubs were involved in Qatar. And the AFC denied that and basically said, you either play in Qatar or you don't play. And because of the popularity of football, because this would have affected seri serious numbers in the, uh, among the population, the Saudis and the UAE were forced to concede. That's the first and only breach in eight months. Now, I wouldn't draw too many conclusions out of that. So, with other words, I'm not saying the door has been opened an inch. I wouldn't exclude it, but I don't, you know, if I had a bet, I would bet against it. Okay, so so um, your view on the the roots of the the conflict between Qatar and Saudi is you see it in purely realist terms. This is simply a competition for dominance. Um, no, it's not a comp. It's not no the competition for dominance is not with Qatar. I mean, there's a competition for dominance which plays very much into this between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And you have a megalomanic small state, the UAE, which uh, operates in part through the Saudi court to get things done, but also acts in many ways as if it were a regional, if not a global power. Uh, in that worldview, there's not room for people who think differently. The Qatari think differently. First of all, they're, you know, you've got to look at Qatar and realize Qatar is a small state, 300,000 citizens, very wealthy, uh, sandwiched between Saudi Arabia and Iran, both of which it views as friends and potential enemies. And it needs to maneuver in that. And so, whereas the Saudis and the UAE have looked at, certainly post-2011, the popular Arab revolts, they are the ones who've staged a, a, a counter-revolution that has cost thousands and thousands of lives, you know, whether it was backing the military coup in Egypt, whether it's ripping Libya apart at the moment, uh, whether, you know, uh, the war in Yemen. Uh, and so it wants a region very much in its autocratic mold that maintains to the degree possible the status quo. Where the, whereas the Guttery saw, you know, and they, and, and both Saudi Arabia and the UAE invest a lot in hard power i.e. the military. Qatar saw its security for the longest period of time. That's changed a bit, but certainly until last year, till, till all of this broke, or till 2014, till they had the first crisis, uh, 
uh, much more in soft power. So it was maintained relations with, you know, all sides of all conflicts. And often so often played a mediating role. And that was a role that often meant that it dealt with groups and people that others didn't want to deal with. Taliban, Hamas, and so on, but often did so with tacit approval of the United States, because the United States needed a backdoor. Uh, and it supported political, you know, it has it has this naive belief, as far as I'm concerned, that, you know, you can support political change across the region and ring fence yourself against it. I'm not quite sure it works that way. But then again, look, you have 300,000 people who are citizens, the highest per capita income in the world, roughly $140,000. Nobody's going to rock the boat. You know, so, you know, there, on that grounds, you know, there was some some realism to what they were they were saying. The problem was that what is true for Qatar is not necessarily true for Saudi Arabia, for example. You know, where the potential for demands for change is far greater. But so that, but that's what it's about. You mentioned that the U.S. has has uh, uh, played a role, particularly. You said that there's. Um, you mentioned Trump's uh, sort of public statements of support for the Saudi position. Uh, it's juxtaposed with with uh, the actual material fact of of the U.S. playing a more well, a, a more friendly uh, role in support of Qatar. What what role should international actors, I mean, not just the US, but maybe should the UN be involved in, in resolving this? It's not a, look, it's not a question of who should or should not be involved. Officially, Kuwait's the mediator, but isn't getting anywhere. And it has its own spat at the moment, with, with again, over sports, uh, ironically, but nonetheless... Its own spat with um, with Saudi Arabia, um, but everybody's tried to mediate. The United States has tried to mediate. Um, you know, Tillerson, the Secretary of State, has been there twice, shuttled back and forth, got nowhere. <clears throat> Various Europeans have tried. There is no, you know, mediation is only possible when two parties are willing to discuss a solution, directly, indirectly. If you're not willing to entertain anything but what you demand, it doesn't matter who mediates, they're not gonna get anywhere. And they haven't, everybody who's tried has not gotten anywhere, um, simply because, you know, unless you're willing to, to recognize that this may not be solvable, and therefore, there needs to be some sort of face-saving formula. If that's not something you're willing to talk about, then there's really nothing on the table to talk about. So I don't think it's a question of who. You know, it's a question of if. Okay. So um, if we if we zoom out, I mean, see the the region as a whole. Um, You've got this this crisis in the Gulf. You've got the ongoing utter misery in Syria, and then this 
in addition to the war in uh, in Yemen, is there a is there a sort of a, a master narrative that that sort of explains what's going on here, in your view? Look, I think what you're seeing is transitions don't take place overnight. Traditionally, they take anywhere between a decade and a quarter of a century. Uh, we're now seven years into transition. So it's certainly going to take much longer than a decade. Um, it's, you know, and and we're not even quite clear what we're transiting to. What we are clear is that the region as a whole is in, if you wish, a multitude of transitions that call into question regimes, call into question national borders, call into question value systems, everything gets called into question. So what you're seeing, and, 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 and to make that even more difficult, and this is coming back to the, the beginning of the, of the conversation, what, what makes it all the more difficult and all the more violent and volatile and brutal is that you have three things. You have a ruthless counter-revolution, you know, which has resulted in the war in Yemen, which has uh, aggravated the crisis in Syria, which led to the military coup in, uh, in Egypt, which has led to civil war in Libya, and so forth. You also have um, conservative regimes, particularly in the Gulf, wealthy conservative regimes, who need, you know, where this is all about regime survival. And regime survival involves not only countering revolutionary trends, it also involves upgrading your autocracy and taking it into the 21st century. So we're seeing economic and social reform in Saudi Arabia. Without that, the regime will not survive. It has to prepare for, you know, for an era post-oil. Anyone born in the Gulf today is likely to see the end of oil by the time they die. And even if oil were still available, they have to diversify, they have to create jobs, they have to create prospects. And, you know, oil over time relative, becomes relatively less important. They have to create 21st century knowledge states that can deal with the technology and everything that goes with it. And the third factor is that is the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. And basically, for the Saudis, it's now or never, because the Saudis have lost this battle on day one. They can buy time, but Iran doesn't really have to do anything. It doesn't need Hamas or Hezbollah or the Houthis or whoever to win this battle. It can just sit back and win it. Look, it's very simple. It's very simple. You have, in my mind, three regional powers. 
and that's Egypt, Turkey, and Iran. And what all three have is huge populations, anywhere between 80 and 100 million, huge domestic markets, uh, battle-hardened militaries, deep-seated identity, either rooted in empire or rooted in perceptions of thousands of years of history, in the like in the case of Egypt. By and large, highly educated populations. Uh, geostrategic importance. And what the Saudis have is Mecca and reduced money. There's no way they can compete. Um, where do you see uh, this progressing in the next five, ten, maybe twenty years? Well, <laughs> that's. <laughs> I think if I if I if I knew that we wouldn't be talking. <laughs> uh, I think that in the short term, uh, you know, it's the old Marxist principle: it's got to get worse to get better. I see very little indication of things getting any better. Um, in the long, you know, and it's very, very difficult to try and um, to try and uh, uh, forecast over a longer period because there are so many variables. You know, just to name a few. Uh, I think that Mohammed bin Salman in economic and social terms, understands where things have to go. I don't know that he knows how to do it. And the problem with that is that he has created tremendous expectations. And the question is whether he will be able to deliver within the timeline of those who are expecting. Um, that's one um, one variable. Another variable is, uh, where is Trump going with Iran? And where is Saudi Arabia going with Iran? Uh, there are indications, again, strong indications, but nonetheless, they're indications and they don't necessarily have put, be put into practice, which would, uh, involve an attempt to at regime change in Iran uh, by trying to create uh, uh, unrest among ethnic minorities in the country. If that happens, you could see destabilization of Pakistan uh, and an enormous blow to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Um, the Palestinians are up a creek. And uh, I don't think that they're going to take it lying down. Um, you have Kurdish issues. You know, uh, I don't think that uh, the future of Iraq as a nation state, it's more secure than it was, but I would not say that it's secure yet. You know, the Kurds made a fatal mistake with their uh, independence referendum last September, 
but that doesn't mean that that aspiration has died down or weakened. Uh, Syrian Kurds have their aspirations. Libya, you know, could fall apart and go further down the list. Uh, you've had six months of protests already in Morocco, in the north. So, you know, with other words, I, 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 I think anybody who makes a prediction beyond the fact that, that you know, this, these are, are processes and conflicts and disputes and transitions that are going to need time to play out is really putting his or her finger up in the air and seeing which way the wind blows. That's really interesting. Th thanks so much for all your time, James. I really appreciate it. I, mean, I think it's a, a, a really interesting topic. Um, Thank uh, you for having me. I, think... I enjoyed it. That was my interview with James N. Dorsey, the author of an absolutely wonderful blog. Go and check it out, called The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer. And thank you for listening. I know it's uh, been a bit inconsistent in the production of episodes recently. Uh, and we've shifted over to uh, what we're calling a, um, an occasional podcast series. And what that means is really just fitting in interviews, recording, editing, and, and, and so on uh, where I can around the uh, job and family responsibilities. But please keep uh, keep us subscribed, keep listening, and, and I hope you'll uh, continue to enjoy the episodes whenever they come out. I've been your host, Dr. Philip Leachnow. This has been Globalization Cafe. Speak to you again next time. Uh, absolutely wonderful blog. Go and check it out called The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer. <laughs>